Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. My name's Nathan, founder of Nurse Wellbeing Mission and your host for this podcast, which I am absolutely loving recording and bringing to you. It really gives me an opportunity to speak to some people in the field of nursing and midwifery about something that is very important to me, and that is improving the lives of nurses and midwives. I've been busy behind the scenes creating online courses around self-compassion and managing stress recently. I absolutely love working on developing learning content and I cannot wait to bring this to the masses, hopefully later on this year. So watch this space for the Nurse Wellbeing Mission courses. In this episode, I speak to someone very special. I talk to Professor Jill Maben, who has many, many achievements in her nursing career, one of which is gaining the title of Order of the British Empire, an OBE, which is a really well-respected thing to achieve in in the UK and recognised, obviously, internationally as well. And this is for Jill's amazing contribution to nursing research. In today's episode, we focus on Schwartz rounds, and my interest in this stemmed from my own experience of participating in these several years back when I worked in different hospital settings and really found them an amazing space with which to reflect on the human aspect and the emotional aspects of the difficult work that we were doing at the time. That's when I was working in brain injury rehabilitation. So in this episode, Jill talks about her research. We dive deep into what Schwartz rounds are, where they came from and why they're beneficial. So personal experiences of their benefits, but also the results of of Jill's research that she has published. So before I bring you the conversation, just a quick reminder, if you don't already follow us on Instagram, uh, you can find us at at underscore nurse wellbeing mission. If you would like to receive wellbeing resources, including videos and articles by me, you can join our free Facebook group. Just type nurse and midwife wellbeing mission on Facebook. Also, just a reminder that if you're listening to this podcast on your headphones through an audio player, you can always watch our conversations that I have with my guests on YouTube as well. So just type and search for Nurse Wellbeing Mission and you will find a playlist of all our episodes and you can visit our YouTube channel there. So whoever you are, wherever you are, I hope you're doing really well. And here is this amazing conversation with Professor Jill Maben. Welcome to the Nurse Wellbeing Mission podcast, hosted by me, Nathan Illman. This is the place where nurse and midwife wellbeing are at the top of the agenda. Each episode aims to help nurses and midwives around the world flourish through informative, inspiring and practical content and conversations. Joe, thanks so much for joining me on the Nurse Wellbeing Mission podcast. Um, if you don't mind just introducing yourself to begin with, just telling us a bit about your background and a little bit about your kind of research journey, if you like, as well. Sure. Thanks, Nathan, very much. And thank you for the invitation. So my name is Jill Maben. I'm Professor of Health Services Research and Nursing at the University of Surrey, where I lead a workforce organisation and wellbeing theme. And in that, we have a number of research projects related to nurse well-being or healthcare staff well-being. I'm a nurse by background, as it says in my title. Um, I haven't been in clinical practice a while, but I think when I became professor, you give a, a lecture that kind of looks back on your life. It's called an inaugural lecture. And it was really then that the penny dropped and I kind of made sense of 
why this mattered so much to me and why my research interests had gone in the direction they have in terms of staff well-being and psychological ill health. Um, because I, I qualified as a nurse some time ago, and I, I nursed um, in some very challenging wards, um, and I, I found it really difficult And I at times, and I think I got burnt out very quickly. Mm-hmm. I couldn't nurse in the way that I wanted to, I felt there's a big gap between how I wanted to nurse and what I could do. Um, And so I left, actually. I left nursing, I thought, for good in 1982 um, after nursing for about two years as a qualified nurse. And I'd done three years as a a student nurse. And I went and did a history degree. Literally, I thought I had left nursing forever. I could never imagine being back as a professor of nursing and studying this or getting a master's or PhD or anything academic. So, um, yeah, it's been a personal journey and it personally matters a lot to me. Thanks for sharing that, Joe. Well, perhaps you could just talk a little bit more then about what what kind of got you back into it. So after the uh, history degree, that's that's interesting. I never knew that about you. <laughs> what what made you uh, change your mind again? Then what experiences did you did you have that made you change your mind? So I nursed when I was studying history. I nursed as an agency nurse, and I think that sort of having less responsibility. I think one of the things I found most challenging was being in charge of a ward. Um, We had about six or seven deaths one week. We had an aggressive patient. It just felt very overwhelming as a, you know, I think I was the same age as my daughter is now. I think I was 22 or 23, and it it was a lot to take on. Um, And I just felt really out of my depth. Mm. And I didn't really feel I was being compassionate and able to nurse in, as I say, in the way I wanted to. So I did nurse when I was studying for my history degree, but I could dip in and out and as an agency nurse, and I didn't have that level of responsibility. And then I went traveling with um, my now husband. Didn't know he was going to be my husband then. Um, We survived two years of traveling around the world and I nursed in Australia. So I worked in Australia for a year. It was a great thing to travel with nursing. Didn't know quite what to do with a history degree, if I'm honest. And um, so I nursed in Australia and I just felt incredibly supported there in a way that I hadn't as a newly qualified nurse in the NHS. I felt like people had my back. I was never left in charge. I had more investment and training in the year I worked in Australia than I had in the two years or more in the NHS. So it just felt a very different environment. And it, it really sort of reignited the fire and the passion in me for nursing because that had never really left. I love nursing and I love patient care and I love making a difference to people. That's what I came into nursing to do. And that's what I had really felt had got lost along the way very quickly. And what about your interest in research then? When did that begin? And um, yeah, sort of, yeah, I suppose, where were you working when that, that all started? So I came back to the UK um, and had done quite a number of years of shift work and nights, and I didn't really think I wanted to do that anymore. And I was just casting around for something else. And I I think I probably had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, if I'm brutally honest. I did my nursing degree in Cambridge, so at Addenbrooke's, and I had a lot of friends who were at Cambridge University. And I there's a bit of me thinking, oh. I can do this. I'm sure I can do this, which I think is why I went to do a degree in history. And then because I hadn't really pursued that, I think academia kind of beckoned in a tangential way. So I saw a job advertised at King's College London. It was a one year contract um, and I happened to get the job. 
it was quite serendipitous. If I'd have got a different job, perhaps my life would have gone in a different direction, but I did get that job. Um, and yeah, then I got the bug really for research, did my master's, did my PhD. Yeah, the rest is history really. Got a, got a post about 10 years ago. So, so yeah, it was quite serendipitous, but I did enjoy research and I did enjoy that finding things out, inquiring, making a difference, providing evidence for practice, understanding really. And I think, as I said, said earlier, I think I was sort of almost trying to understand my own journey and history in a way. I normally ask people at the end of these conversations about kind of advice they have for people, but this feels like a very uh, sort of a good point to ask this actually about what advice would you give to nurses who are working in clinical settings who may have an interest in pursuing a research path? Absolutely. Do really consider it. I mean, I recognize it's a really challenging thing to do alongside a clinical career, but I do support people at the University of Surrey who do masters alongside a clinical career. Um, we definitely support you. I know often it's done in your own time. Um, but uh, yeah, make connections. Some people do undergraduate dissertations, they get the bug then. But I think we haven't always been great at making research feel real for clinicians, um, particularly nurse clinicians. You know, the so what, why would I do this? Why would I be interested? What what can it do for me? What can it do for nursing? What have, what can it do for patient care? And I guess I work alongside a lot of very inspiring colleagues at Surrey, but also at Kings where I was before, who do a huge amount for making things better for patients, but also for staff. Um, and that's definitely what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to help nurses deliver the care they want to do and to maintain their compassion and their empathy, which we know patients want, but we know is really difficult to keep across a career when you it's quite easy to get burnt out and it's a very stressful job where we're encountering human distress on a level that most members of the public do not encounter. We're seeing people dying, we're seeing people get very difficult diagnoses, we're having to deal with some challenging colleagues sometimes. Um, it's quite a hierarchical system in the NHS. So there's lots of challenges in that work. But most of us are driven by wanting to make a difference, wanting to care for patients, wanting to help families at some of the most difficult times in their lives. So it's an immensely rewarding job, but it's not always easy. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a multitude of different things that we could talk about. But obviously today we're going to focus on Schwartz rounds. And I think what you were just talking about there is a nice segue into that. So let's dive into Schwartz rounds. And I think if we come at this from the perspective of perhaps people listening who've never attended one, they might not know what a Schwartz round is. They might have heard that term before. So let's let's go from that perspective. Could you just talk us through what a Schwartz round is to begin with? Definitely. So I think we have to start with the name because it's, it's not always... Um, obvious what that mm. means and I remember in in our research study one of our public members said it made them think of spices Schwartz spices <laughs> right <laughs> like, wow okay hadn't even thought of that but yes it doesn't exactly tell you what it is on the tin so to speak so what is a Schwartz round and why is it called Schwartz rounds well it's named after an American lawyer called Kenneth Schwartz and he was a patient in 1995, so many years ago now, and he was a relatively young man, he was 39, and he had incurable lung cancer. And he um, he, wanted, he set up the uh, Center for Compassionate Care in Boston, and Schwartz rounds were named after him. And what he 
why that was is because what he noticed was that when he wrote a fabulous article in the Boston Globe where he talked about what it was like to be end of life, really, or to know that there was no curative treatment and that what mattered to him was how people connected with him, how staff talked to him about his children, about their children, about, you know, they, they connected on a human level. And he talked about when medicine can't provide any answers or has kind of failed, what mattered most was that staff were compassionate and empathic to him. And what that did for him was made, he said, the unbearable bearable. But what he noticed was that some staff could do it some days and not others, or some staff couldn't do it at all. So it made him think, probably quite unusually for a patient maybe, but he thought, what is it like to work here? What Mm. is it like to be in a setting where perhaps you're nursing someone who's the same age as you, who might have the same age children, that actually it makes staff confront their own mortality? And how difficult is that on a daily basis? So it made him think, what do staff need to keep doing this work? How do they process this? How do they make sense of this work? And his oncologist, um, Thomas Lynch, and his, um, his oncology nurse, Mimi Bartholomew, um, and his sister-in-law um, came together to develop Schwartz rounds. Very interestingly, they started originally in grand rounds, in sort of medical grand rounds, and then they morphed into what is now a Schwartz round. But that's very, that was very deliberate. We actually went to Boston to interview Thomas Lynch, which was really fascinating. Um, and he told us that it was really important for him that doctors were involved, that it, he didn't want it to be seen as a soft and fluffy sort of thing over here that was for others and was mm. only for nurses, that it actually is for the whole multidisciplinary team. And that's what's really critical about it. And there are very few interventions, well-being interventions or interventions that help you process the work challenges that are for everyone. And that is a key part of why they work and how they work, in my opinion. Um, so Schwartz rounds were born. And they morphed from these grand rounds. The first first Schwartz round had x-rays being held up and things, which seems bizarre now, given we know what they are, which I'm going to tell you in a minute. Um, But um, yeah, that's how they started. And they're named after Kenneth Schwartz, who was a patient. Um, Yeah. Thanks for that background. Yeah, there's um, there's so many fascinating points about that. I think, like, uh, as you were talking, you know, I I sort of reminded myself of the the background of Schwartz rounds as well. And I was... I was thinking about the experience I had last year with my dad. And I think I've shared with you when we first met that my dad was in ICU and then he he died. And I was thinking about the compassionate care that I witnessed my dad getting. And as a family member, noticed, really noticed when staff made that little connection with you. And it really helped mine and my family's experience. And, and it's really important, isn't it, to support staff to, to actually empathize with, with patients um, and, and something else that I was thinking about as well was the idea of different forms of knowledge and how and we get, we'll get into this, but I guess Schwartz rounds help with developing that kind of more personal knowledge of your emotions and the interpersonal side of the work that you're doing rather than just the kind of empirical, scientific, technical knowledge that perhaps a nurse might need to have to uh, to deliver care, for example. I think you've made something so important there that I think what's quite unique, I would say, about nursing work, but healthcare work generally, but nurses are at the bedside much more or in the community 24-7, you know, seven days a week, um, that not many people are asked to bring their full selves to work every day, to bring their emotions, to bring their empathy, to bring their compassion, 
and to deliver that all day, every day to every patient. So it's a lot to ask, I think. And I think that's, you know, really at the nub of my work. How do you keep doing that? How do you keep connecting with people, keep making that time to connect, you know, what you saw and what you noticed um, in your dad's situation? You know, I've noticed as a patient um, when somebody comes and sits on your bed and really takes time to listen to you, um, mm. they're not just coming to do a task. That, and that's what Schwartz Rand's developed to do to provide a sort of a safety net or a support mechanism to help people process those emotional social and ethical challenges at work that we all face um, and provide a safe space to um, talk about them with other colleagues and make sense of them Um, and what we know from our work but other work is that actually talking about them and sharing them actually can provide some element of closure, some processing of that, and people can sort of put those experiences in a different place, but can learn from others, you know, what's worked, but also end up really admiring colleagues and feeling much more bound together as a team when they hear about the extraordinary things that people do every day in the NHS. And I think you've touched on something really important there, which is it's not just just about sharing experience, because I think a lot of people would agree, okay, yeah, sharing things can be helpful. And something I love about your research is that you really look specifically at why that sharing and what are the conditions that are necessary for that to work and for who that works for. So before we get into that a little bit more, um, I know you and your team have sort of delineated the four stages of Schwartz Round. So do you want to just talk us through those stages and what that looks like, if you yeah. can remember them all? Yeah. <laughs> so... I mean, I'll 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 tell because I, I realize I've sort of given so much context and background, which is probably me talking as a realist researcher, you know, context and background is everything to help us understand. But a round is a group session, really, mm. where people come together possibly once a month. That's how they usually work in a space, um, often at lunchtime, but not always. Food is always provided, and that's part of the contract, which is important because it's It's both practical that people don't have to get their lunch before they come. They can grab their lunch and have it in the round, but also it's symbolic of breaking bread and eating together and and building teams. Um, So, and what's how rounds start? Rounds are facilitated. There's usually two facilitators, um, preferably, um, or clinical lead and a facilitator. And the round starts with anywhere up to three or four people sharing a pre-prepared story. So it'll be the round will have a title, could be what keeps me awake at night, a patient I'll never forget, when things don't go as planned, things like that, um, that, that bring things together. That's a themed round where each of the storytellers um, will go in turn, speak for five minutes, and they will share something on that theme. So they will each to say what keeps them awake at night, and that might all be different. There's another type of round, which is a patient case round, which you see in the NHS much more. We don't have that so much in rounds at the University of Surrey, where we run them for our undergraduates. But um, a case-based round would be where there's a patient case that has been become quite famous or infamous or lots of people know about it, or it's been particularly challenging and difficult for various reasons. And, it, and the facilitator, as I think this would make a good topic for a Schwartz round. Um, so in that case, you would get 
two, three, four different perspectives on the same case and the same patient. And that can be particularly fascinating because you might get the nurse experience, the doctor experience, the social worker, the speech therapist, sometimes the lawyer from the hospital. And so what that can do is deepen our understanding of each other's roles and what we do. Once the stories have finished, the facilitator opens it out to the audience to tell um, uh, to, to, to offer their insights. Some people will tell, share second stories. Some people will comment on what they've heard. It's, it's important that it's not a Q&A session or it's not problem solving. It's a space that is held quite tightly by the facilitators as a sp space to talk and process, not to problem solve. And in our research, we talked about making it a countercultural space. So it's very countercultural. It's very different to the rest of the NHS because it's a space where stillness and silence is valued. There's often silences in rounds, particularly when the storytellers have stopped speaking, people are thinking. It's a space where it's not sort of protocol-driven, outcome-orientated, as a lot of NHS is. It's also where hierarchies are flattened, so everybody is there as a human being. It doesn't matter if you're consultant A or healthcare assistant B or porter C. You are all equal in rounds because you all... Um, everyone provides patient care and and has the same mission, really, in, in an organisation, which is to provide the best patient care and to support each other. So I think they're important differences. So that would go on, the sort of facilitated discussion would go on for sort of 45, 50 minutes. And then the last word always goes back to the panellists. So it's quite structured mm. and quite set, almost in a way that a therapy session might be. It always ends on time. It's always predictable. And the last word goes to the panellists who then reflect on what they've heard. Sometimes they will have yeah, reflected differently just because of they've heard their colleagues reflect on things and they've heard their colleagues respond to their stories in a certain way. So they say, well, they don't have to, but they can share you know, how they found the experience and how it's made them think about their experience in perhaps in a different way or the same way. And then the round closes and then we do evaluation forms, et cetera. But I think that we were very struck when we did our research, how consistent they were across the country. We, I probably observed about 50 rounds and they were all, they weren't all the same by any means. They're very different, but um, the structure was the same. And I think that provides, that helps provide a safe, psychologically safe and containing space. They are confidential. You sign a confidentiality statement when you come in. You can talk about rounds generally, but you can't talk about what people say. Or um, And I think that's important too. Um, yeah, so the four stages, sorry. I will finally get to your question, Nathan. The four stages are, we decided that, that really rounds begin much earlier than getting in that room. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the sort of key, one of the findings of our research. So that the, the coming together in that hour looks kind of seamless. And here we are together for an hour, but there's a lot of preparation that goes on. So the first thing is finding a storyteller, finding stories, ear to the ground. What are the stories out there? What, who, who can tell this? Finding a storyteller. The next phase is probably one of the most important phases, which is the, the panel preparation, the preparation of the storytellers. And ideally meet together with the storytellers um, so they can each hear each other's stories. If there's more than one, they decide an order of which to go in. But they're not they're not surprised or hijacked by someone else's story because they've heard it. So that's all about preparing the ground for it to be psychologically safe. We check whether it's it's OK for the story to be told. Is it too raw? Is it is it going to upset people? Is there going to be a lot of controversy? 
Um, and we also help people tell their story in five minutes. Another key thing there is getting people to paint a picture, really. So the best rounds and the best stories, because the stories are really the vehicle for the round. They, they're the engine of the round. They, they, um, they trigger resonance and reflection, you hope, in the audience. So you're picking the, the stories to be, OK, we might know there's some people from the community, so we want a community story. Or you're picking it to be resonant with the audience, but also to paint a picture. So when someone's telling a story, you can actually imagine yourself in that room or in that scenario with that person. Um, and they are the most powerful stories. And I've been in rounds where you can literally hear a pin drop. And it is so extraordinary. You know, there's a round full of, a room full of 60, 70, 80 people. And there is not a sound because everyone is listening so carefully because they're, you know, they're hanging on every word of the storyteller. What's going to happen next? What's, what's, what's going to, you know, what happened? What's the outcome? Where, where, where's this story going? So helping storytellers prepare what is a little bit of a performance, really, but keeping it to five minutes and keeping on time, not going away and writing lots of notes and then reading it because that, that kind of kills the storytelling bit um, is really important. And then the round itself, I've explained, that's the hour. And then the stage four is the after effects and the ripple effects. So as I said, rounds are not expected to have outcomes or change practice. That's not their, you know, that's not their raison d'etre, but they do. And a lot of our data would talk about these ripple effects, how conversations changed, how compassion grew in organizations, but it's quite a slow intervention. It takes time to change culture, but people would say things like conversations have a, have a space to grow now. There's a fertile area for conversations to grow and for us to be more compassionate to each other, but also to ourselves. And I think that's something else that rounds do. It encourages you to be compassionate to self. And my experience is that not many healthy care professionals are great at being compassionate to themselves. We put ourselves definitely second, patients always first. And we come last in the list of, of our needs being met, but also the people getting compassion. I'm curious to know why you, what your thoughts are on why it helps people to be more compassionate towards themselves from, from your experience of witnessing or participating in them and your research, of course. Yeah. So I think I think there's some role modeling that goes on in rounds, mm -hmm. which I think is really critical. So often the storyteller can be well, it can be anyone, but but I think, as I've said before, you can see into other people's lives and experiences that you may know very little about. And I think sometimes you can have a senior clinician who is um, struggling with the death of a patient or with a, an experience or a decision they've had to make. And that can be quite difficult for some people. Not difficult exactly, but quite surprising. Mm -hmm. um, how is it after 30 years you haven't kind of got this cracked? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that role modeling by senior clinicians to show that actually one has to develop something of a hardened exterior to cope with the vagaries and the challenges of a, of a life as a healthcare professional, because you can't care deeply about every single patient every single day or else you would never function. But there's always some patient or some experience that will get through to you and will almost crack this armor that we have to put on. Yeah. And that that vulnerability and people role modeling that vulnerability allows others to be vulnerable and allows, I think, sometimes that self-compassion in. So by seeing others 
become perhaps distressed or be vulnerable or share experiences, I think the reflection that happens in around enables staff to think about their own experiences, sometimes their own personal experiences. I mean, rounds touch every aspect of your life, really, and allow some reflection on why am I so hard on myself? Why, 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 why don't I forgive myself? You know, they're questions people ask in rounds of themselves. Um, and so I think it allows self-compassion to, to grow, really. Yeah, that's certainly my experience and I guess my understanding. I think we often have these shoulds about how we should be able to manage situations, don't we? Mm. Many people working in healthcare, definitely nurses. I should be able to cope. I shouldn't be feeling burnt out. And then, like you said, when you actually see that vulnerability of people, particularly people who might be higher than you in the hierarchy, sharing that actually they're not coping very well with this particular situation, it yeah. it makes you feel human, doesn't it? It makes you see that we're all imperfect and actually that yeah. it's it's okay to not be managing that idea of yeah, cracking the armor. Or I guess with, with rounds, the way they're set up, it's almost like you're saying, if you're going to participate here, you're kind of taking your armor off for, for the... Um, definitely duration and leaving it at the door really along with your your title and your badge and your everything you know it kind of strips you down to to being human and to being a human being and that that's why we're all equal yeah because we've all got these difficulties these challenges hardly anybody or nobody's got it cracked every single time or every single day so sharing those experiences i think allows others to learn and yeah, be compassionate to each other. I mean, you de- we definitely heard that in our research, people um, being able to be compassionate to other colleagues, learning more about colleagues, realising what a great job they're doing, how they could be compassionate to others, um, and so wanting to refer their patients to them. And, you know, it was, it was a lot of learning goes on and around that is perhaps unexpected or um, was not always anticipated. I heard a really wonderful quote sometime earlier this year. I think someone said something like, vulnerability builds the bridge to genuine connection and I know that in your research you've identified some of the benefits rounds have on team functioning and and teams and and that was certainly my experience when I participated in rounds was that the conversations that happened afterwards it was a felt sense of a greater deeper connection between people knowing that you understood a bit more about the feelings of your uh, your colleagues and you're able to probably have deeper conversations with them outside the rounds as well yeah definitely definitely and I think people talk about it being a an opportunity to kind of step off the treadmill and come in and be in a different space and and allow some of those feelings to come because I think we, we had an extremely powerful quote in one in our in our research where someone would talk about you know, the feelings and how they push them down, push them down, push them down. They must have said push them down about five times. And that's the norm, that we almost can't allow those feelings to come to the surface because you would worry about not functioning or breaking down all the time. But actually in rounds, you allow some of the feelings to come and that processing of them um, enables different things to grow, I think, and different things to come in. So if we think about this from the perspective of nurses, what might be some of the barriers from your personal experience for nurses to attend these? I mean, some practical ones, but also maybe personal ones that, that you've encountered. Yeah, and I think you raise a really important point because rather sadly for me, um, nurses 
ward-based nurses um, or nurses in the community, um, those giving care to patients were seemed least able to attend. And that was really difficult to see. Um, and I know organisations tried hard to schedule rounds, you know, at breakfast or in the evening or um, different times of the day to try and accommodate people. But I think it was difficult. I mean, they usually settled on lunchtime because it suited most other people best, but um, it didn't always suit nurses best because they were often feeding patients, giving out lunches, you know, doing having handovers, different things were happening then. So I did we did encounter some allied health professionals who had a great idea of of um, sort of tagging going to rounds, tag teaming. So they would take turns to go to rounds so they couldn't all get off off away from practice and come to rounds and so some would go and then they'd come back and talk about it um, anonymously but talk with each other and then the others would go and that seemed like a really nice solution um so we definitely heard nurses saying they couldn't come they couldn't get time off the wards um what we did see was a lot of nurses in what i'd call sort of navy blue uniforms so the more senior nurses who had um autonomy and who could manage their own schedules so those who could, you know, fit this into their diaries, but but others, um, sort of healthcare assistants and, and registered nurses often found it more difficult. I think some of the other challenges that we know from our work, but also other work, is that I think nurses have a bit of pride if um, about being stoic and a bit resilient, if I can use that rather controversial term. It's a term yeah. I don't particularly <laughs> like. And I'm sure you don't too. I think the problem with mm. resilience is it can make you feel if you're still if you're not coping that you're not resilient enough somehow you yeah. haven't quite done enough and actually that the responsibility for coping in in what can sometimes be really difficult circumstances with no staff or no equipment is that your fault you're not being resilient enough. It's actually lets organisations off the hook in terms of their own responsibilities. But anyway. That's a little soapbox on resilience. But um, I think nurses can have some sense of pride in being busy and keeping going and stoicism um, until, like me, they slightly hit the buffers. And then, you know, they're they're surprised and thinking, goodness, how did I, how did I get to here? And how am I burnt out? And am I burnt out? And um, what do I do now? And I had no um, preparation for how I felt at all. I had no nobody even don't think I even knew what the word burnout was or what it might look like. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was no anticipatory prevention of that. And I guess what I would say rounds does is it if you can go regularly, and that's what we definitely saw in our research, if you go regularly, it can be protective. And the more rounds you attend, the more protective it is because it gives you a space to, you know, let out some of these feelings and perhaps. I'm not saying it can necessarily prevent burnout, but it can give some coping mechanisms that perhaps are not available elsewhere. But I think it's really hard for nurses to prioritise it, given the demands on their time and patient care gets prioritised first, understandably. They can't get away from clinical practice. So I think I think that's challenging. You obviously witnessed, you said, I think about 50 rounds in different organisations Presumably you saw some sites that were better at providing that practical assistance. So 
Can you just talk a little bit about that? I mean, I guess it's things like increased starving, staffing and, and being a bit more flexible with staffing. So if there's anyone listening to it, perhaps there are some of the more senior nurse, nurses listening to this and thinking, oh, well, I would like to be able to encourage my and support my staff to go. What what did you see that worked? So I think we saw um, you really need rounds champions in organisations, people yeah. who get it, who understand what rounds are. I think it's we interviewed people who had never been to rounds and who didn't know what they were and they didn't know if they were allowed to come. Did they need an invitation? Did they need permission? So I think there's a huge amount of sort of comms work to do in organisations. What are rounds? You know, as we said, it don't know what it, it doesn't say what it is on the tin. You know, you think of a Schwartz round, it doesn't immediately tell you what it is. No. Certainly people in our research, we had members of our steering group who we'd been talking about Schwartz rounds for about a year. And I kept encouraging them to go. I said, please go, please go. They came back and they're absolutely blown away. They're like, oh my goodness, I had no idea it was like that. And there's something about sitting in a round and really, you almost have to feel it, yeah. feel the power of the silence, feel the power of the listening. And you can, oh, somebody said to me, goodness, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. I've never heard anything like this in the NHS. And I've worked in the NHS for 30 years. So yeah. I think there's something about really understanding the power of rounds and what they are so that you can spread the word. And I think as senior nurses and other clinicians, if you get them and if you get the evidence base and how they, they can help stress and um, you know support teams and help ripple effects to grow, then you will prioritize them for your staff. And I, I appreciate in the current climate, that is really difficult. But what we did see was um, people letting students who are supernumerary come to rounds um, so that they were cultivating some um, knowledge of rounds that hopefully would carry on into qualified practice. We saw, as I say, in that allied health professional team, them taking turns, they organized that themselves. So different people came. Um, if there is a better time of day, lobby the facilitators and say, actually, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon is better for my team. So can we have some of those, please? Um, also about where they are seemed to be really critical um, in acute trust, you know, being in the centre of a hospital where everyone could get to easily was important. So it didn't take so long to get there for community nurses. That's sometimes difficult, but um, having it, you know, near a base or something that was important. The other thing that Point of Care Foundation tried and some trust trialed was what was called pop-up rounds, where they were shorter rounds that were undertaken with ward-based staff. And that developed more in the pandemic in something called team time. So in the pandemic, rounds moved online and they were much more focused on a, a small team. So it might be an emergency department team or a ward team. Um, and stories didn't have to be quite so digested. They could be more recent stories um, because normal rounds are open to anyone and everyone from any discipline, as I, as I think I alluded to earlier. Mm -hmm. So I think having some pop-up rounds, discrete rounds, maybe online rounds are easier for some people. And I know some trusts have kept them in, in post-pandemic and they have some online and some face-to-face. Um, -face. I mean, they are different. Um, and I guess there's quite a growing number of places doing rounds with undergraduates now. So, again, we're trying to develop that understanding and knowledge of rounds so that we're encouraging our students to go and ask for them and find out where they are in their trusts and make sure they can go. Because, again, you know, the individual can sort of lobby to go and say, I really want to go. This is really important to me. Um, not always easy to say when you're a student. Um, but uh, but yeah. 
So we've got a project now called Schwartz South, where we're rolling out rounds across um, up to seven higher education institutions for undergraduates. So we do them at the University of Surrey. So we're, we're trying to spread the Schwartz love across the South and uh, supporting other organisations to run them for their undergraduates, which are yeah enormously powerful and a great privilege to facilitate in. I'm a trained facilitator and facilitating student rounds is um, is different again, but extraordinary. I'm always I'm in awe of our students' capacity to be honest and open and make themselves vulnerable in front of their peers and support each other. They are incredibly compassionate and generous to each other. And um, that's really lovely to see. As you know, part of my mission is all about preventative mental health for nurses and midwives. And I think it's fantastic that you're leading this project to to embed that within higher education. I think it's a fantastic way, as you mentioned before. And, and I, I believe that it can prevent burnout and other emotional difficulties that people experience, I guess, as part of other kind of interventions and things. But it's certainly one fantastic way people can share experiences and, and get some support this has been such a great overview of Schwartz Rounds. I uh, really appreciate your time, Jill. Thank you so much for, for talking about this with me. And there's there's lots more that we could dig into, but perhaps we can just save that for another conversation. Should we just finish by, perhaps you can uh, tell everyone where they can find you and your research. Certainly. And um, if I just might sneak in one more thing, sure. uh, Nathan, sorry. Um, but I think in terms of the evidence base, our national evaluation has given a lot of evidence. We didn't have evidence in the UK to, before about how they worked and their effectiveness. But certainly in terms of their effectiveness, what we found was through um, 500 questionnaires in over 10 sites of, of people who hadn't been to rounds. And then we tracked them again after eight months. We use the GHQ-12, which is a validated measure of um, clinical um, poor well-being, really. So stress and not being able to sleep and they're quite specific items in there. And we found that for everyone who had did the GHQ-12, 32% had poor well-being that would be sufficient to have intervention. And that, that's quite consistent across the NHS. It's often quite surprising that there's so many staff at work unwell, really. But that's quite consistent. What we found of those who didn't attend, they were 37% at the start of the study, so a little bit more. Um, but eight months later, they had been no change, really. So they were a control group. So they were 34%. But of those who attended rounds and attended more than half of rounds over that eight-month period, their poor well-being dropped from 25 to 12. So it halved. And we were very surprised by that. Um, because it's quite difficult to shift the GHQ-12 in that way. So I think that really gives us a good evidence base to suggest that rounds do have an effect with regular attendance. Um, and in terms of if you want to um, start rounds, the best place to start is with the Point of Care Foundation. Yeah. They're a charity that hold the license in the UK and you have to have a license with them. Um, and in terms of my work and research, find me at the University of Surrey, um, I have quite an unusual name when you Google Jill Maben, J-I-L-L-M-A-B-E-N. Um, it's me that comes up. So you will be able to find me and um, email me at Surrey or yeah, reach out via Twitter. Thanks, Jill. That's fantastic. Well, um, we'll leave things there. Thanks very much. Lovely to talk to you, Nathan. Thanks for the time. Cheers.